is uh, This is Joe Cole. This is Ruben Loftus Cheek, and you're listening to the London, the London is Blue, Blue podcast. podcast. Hello, and welcome back to episode seven of the Tinker Men podcast, part of the London is Blue network. Once again, I am joined by my illustrious co host. Yassine McLean, as we prepare to dig into a multitude of Chelsea topics throughout the course of this episode. Yaz, how's it going, mate? I'm all good. Um, I'm one wisdom tooth down from when we last <laughs> spoke. Unfortunately, that's that's dominated my week. But um, yeah, do you know what? I, after, with all the ownership and other stuff going on and, you know, ownership being linked with conflicts and this, that and the other and the geopolitics of sport and sport washing and everything, it's nice to just be on an episode where we can actually talk about the football because there has been a lot of really good football, well, good and bad football, but interesting football to to discuss. So um, I'm looking forward to it. How are you? All good? Yeah, good, mate. Yeah, and I think this is... This might be a first where we've actually, or we're actually recording straight after, like a really, well, the second half against Burnley was really good. Like it's the first time that might have happened as well. So I'm interested to see actually where that takes the conversation rather than us being sort of analytical, maybe a bit critical. It'd be nice to actually see where some of the good is as well. So yeah. Um, So for everyone listening, we are looking at a five-parter here. How that's broken down in terms of episodes, I will leave to our big-brained editor, Jake. Um, But in terms of what we're going to be discussing in this episode... um, Part one is going to be kind of a deep dive on Romelu Lukaku. And we're, we're sort of trying to figure out what is going on there. Hasn't started a lot of uh, bigger games recently. Seems to be possibly falling out of favour. Where is that heading in terms of the, the conversation with him? In part two, we're going to take a, a look at uh, Chelsea's approach versus Liverpool. And I think maybe how sort of the process that, that Tuchel is putting in place there, the success that he's enjoying against Klopp as a, as a coach in Liverpool as a team, is maybe getting lost in the noise of of the of the result, and certainly with the penalty shootout situation with with Kepa there. Part three, we're going to dig into just some uh, some lineup uh, shape, sort of system focused questions and things that are sort of been interesting. I'm uh, particularly curious about uh, Yazzie's take on Ruben Loftus Cheek as the sort of rebirth of John Obi Mikel. Um, part four, I think probably is going to be one of my favourite segments we're going to do, which is just I think Yaz and I waxing lyrical about Thiago Silva. Um, I think both long-standing fans that had, that probably has now been cemented to a, a point of of yeah that being sort of an immovable opinion that I have. So looking forward to digging there, but also elaborating a tiny bit on the centre-back situation that we have sort of impending in the summer. Um, and as usual, part five is going to be the uh, I don't know if it's infamous Tinkerman ten, but it's certainly one that we get a lot of positive feedback on here. So um, I've got some some yeah some difficult questions in some respects for Yas to answer. One in there in particular, which is non-football related, I'm curious to get his answer on. But the rest of them I think are, are going to be interesting to tackle as well. So with that being said, we're going to move into the first part here, um, and I want to set the scene a little bit before I hand over to to Yas here. But I remember. Yaz and I talking in the summer and I think our uh, our WhatsApp conversations are a little bit more <laughs> rudimentary uh, than, than some of our podcast episodes have certainly been. And, and I think Yaz was was quite fair on, on Lukaku, certainly in the, the early episodes that we had. Maybe I think your kind of takes in, in what, so I wouldn't, wouldn't even call them takes, I just think that they were kind of fair assessments at the time are starting to bear a little bit of uh, fruition here. And it feels a little bit like Groundhog Day. Uh, I think certainly some of the early episodes that we've done, um, I think we'd nailed a lot of the Lukaku analysis, why it wasn't working, why it might not potentially work, what sort of the the factors at play were there. Um, but once again, I think maybe sort of, let's say, reignited by some, what I felt was a little bit of sloppy match of the day analysis. Um, Lukaku is, is back front and centre in terms of the Chelsea conversation. So 
I said, even though I, I do think our takes hold up from earlier in the season, I think it, it's useful to maybe clarify some of them now, particularly I'm calling it the PI period, the post-interview period, um, just sort of seeing where things are heading. So I, I want to start with a really high-level question, and then I think we're moving to some of the details there, yeah. So is there an emerging trend to say that Kai Havertz is now Thomas Tuchel's number nine for Chelsea and that Lukaku is is going to be that supplementary player? Have we seen a trend in terms of performances in terms of in terms of selections for key matches is that a trend that you think is going to continue for the rest of the season yeah I think you've you've hit a lot of points there um and the most pertinent of them I want to touch on is when I went back and I listened to what we expected of Rom thought about Rom we were so much more balanced on the pod than on whatsapp yeah and I don't know if that's (laughs) I don't know I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing maybe we were we were too, too um tried to be too hopeful, tried to be too objective, almost looking at where it is currently. Because I remember when we when we um, had sort of announced the signing or it was sort of confirmed that, yeah, this is going to go ahead. Uh, the emoji I sent to you was not a flattering one. Um, <laughs> and, and I was very much, why are we not just letting Havertz continue the good momentum he's built as a nine? Um, and, and, and for people who've listened to every Tinkerman episode, I think there will be themes that we have touched on before in this discussion um, like we have had to talk about Kai versus Rom up top. We have talked about the differences. We have talked about all that stuff. But considering that that this infamous seven-touch Crystal Palace game is in this little body of matches we're looking yeah. at, I think it is important that we do look at that game, but also do just go back to those talking points from earlier episodes and do compare what we expected with what we have gotten and what has happened. And I think you're absolutely right to mention the post-interview um uh sort of i guess timing because since then it has been poor um really poor so i mean is kai the chelsea number nine um i i think it looks that way um it's it's a small sample size because and and we have two premier league games coming up now um that could totally change that i mean you've got um Norwich, who, if ever there was a game, well, Norwich and Newcastle, really, if ever there was games where you want your misfiring number nine to get a bit of confidence, then I guess you play him against teams threatening, uh, threatened by the drop. But I think, I think if we look at the last few games, I think it does, um, it should be a warning to Lukaku. It should be concerning for Lukaku. Tuchel's quotes after Burnley. Um, talking about Kai was talking about how he gives us volume he gives us meters he covers so much ground he covers it in high intensity um, he creates overloads he comes and gets involved he, he he was effusive in his praise about what Kai brings to that role um, after Burnley just this weekend compare that to the Crystal Palace game where they asked about they basically said is it your system's fault that Rom only got seven touches, two in the first half, including a center kickoff. And he said, no, it's not about the system. Um, he said, I don't have a good answer. He wasn't involved. He couldn't make a point. But I don't think it says anything about us in general. And both of those things sort of together felt quite pointed. Um, and I, there does seem a bit of tension there. Uh, maybe it's, it's Rom, maybe not delivering what Tuchel wants and, and the expectations and all the sort of... And then you get online, the the silly side of it, where people over-examine and over-psychoanalyze every yeah. every little detail. And, and it... 
it's difficult because we're fans and we do consume all this stuff and we we don't see the training ground so we do have way less to go off than than maybe we would like to but i think i think we're in a really interesting um period of rom's selection i think if you if you sort of look at that post interview period um and and look at the trends of selection since then obviously dropped for the 2-2 at Liverpool, uh, at home to Liverpool where we played fantastic and and I've talked on an episode previously where it was night and day between Brighton where we had to stand off and not press because Rom isn't great at it compared to Liverpool where we were Stamford Bridge following the ball right up until Kelleher in goal and Kai was leading the press there um, and we looked better for it. Um, and then after that period, we had the Tottenham games in the EFL Cup where we we played 4-2-4, 4-2-2-2, whatever you want to call it. Maybe maybe a, a solution to try and make the counter-pressing around Rom a little bit better, get bodies around Rom a little bit better, getting more support. He missed some big chances in those two legs. Got a goal against Chesterfield. Again, it's the sort of thing where you do roll out your misfiring players to to get some run uh, get some run and get some momentum and you would think Chesterfield at home in the cup you don't play your 100 million pound man but it's obviously the opposite situation had a big <laughs> chance against man city um, again though like it was it was rom and timo up top and then rom and havertz up top against spurs and then you feel like the pulisic zh selection at man uh, away to man city was was with it, with rom in mind and and getting some transitional opportunities there then that took us to Brighton, Spurs in the league, and Plymouth at home. All of those were sort of four three threes or or variants of that, where it was Ziyech and Hudson Odoi, two guys who obviously delivery in the box is their stilo, their mo. You get the feeling that was maybe to get the best out of Rom again. Um, he got the minutes in the Club World Cup out in the UAE. Interestingly, taken off in the final when when the result was in slight doubt, and then the Crystal Palace game with these sort of pointed comments. And then we have a knockout Champions League game where he's dropped. We have a cup final against one of the best teams in the world where he's dropped. Um, he comes back for a lower league FA Cup tie. And then we've got a Premier League game again where he's dropped. And so when you take that all into account and in the context of a lot of changes in the 11 after that interview um, to try and get him firing loads of different formations and and configurations around him and now we've got this little five four game sample size where the most important games do not involve him from the start I think you can only look at that and say that Kai is now the number nine and, and the guy to build that attack around and and I think you look at uh, the goal data since then and since the the Brighton goal um, where the interview came after it the only teams he has scored against have been Chesterfield and Luton so that doesn't really bode very well either <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, that's quite an interesting stat actually there. Um, and I mean, the more the more you're talking, uh, yes, I think something has sort of come to my mind here where you almost get this kind of sliding scale effect with Lukaku. And for those of you, and I'm sure that pretty much everyone listening to this will have played football manager at some point. You know, if you've got the transfer and wages thing, you slide it one way, you can spend more wages, less on transfers, and vice versa. It feels with Lukaku, and I'm, I'm looking at the Crystal Palace performance here. There seem to be, and I appreciate that in the grand context of what we want a £100 million centre for to do, that this isn't necessarily the the metric or even sort of the visual test to judge him on. But there seem to be some encouraging signs about him being slightly more 
um, mobile or more willing or whatever, you know, whatever way you want to position it in terms of his pressing and, and off the ball stuff there. So if we're trying to take, I mean, this possibly is the most extreme version of trying to take a positive from a very, very poor performance. But from, let's say from the Palace game onwards in his cameo since, have you seen more of a willingness for him to engage in the press to actually be part of it? And then I suppose the follow-up would be, um, is that such a detriment to his overall game that we're going to see, you know, not necessarily see a, a performance as, as poor as the Palace one, but is is a performance is trending in that direction more likely if he is going to engage in that press more? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point. And I think Palace, I was watching back and thinking, hold on a minute, because the, 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 the pattern with Lukaku when he plays in our team is that we have to defend 40 yards away from the goal because he just has been an ineffective presser. Um, it gets played around him. He he doesn't, he kind of times it wrong. He goes when there isn't the support and he doesn't always check for that. And But against Palace, I was watching it thinking, hold on a minute, there's there's a clear shift here. He is making more effort to to press. I don't, I don't know whether it was instruction or just him seeing where this was trending and deciding I need to put in more of a shift here. Uh, and then when I went and sort of checked it, nothing crazy, but just the pressure numbers that Statsbomb put out, it was the most pressures uh, that he'd attempted in a game all season. And so I think that did bear fruit. And I think um, while the, the the punchline was the lack of touches, I, I was encouraged. I did think it was positive. I did think he was much more effective off the ball. I know, I know it is sort of Torres and Werner level scraping the barrel here <laughs> but the touch the when he was involved in the game they were effective yeah. touches there was two really nice flick-ons to Pulisic to start something going um and and then yeah but then it comes back to the same thing you've just asked if it's a hundred million pound player should we be expectant of more than a couple good flick-ons and sets and putting some effort in off the ball yes we should um I think Liverpool again is a very interesting one and I know we're going to talk about that final in, in its sort of total form. So we won't go too much into this, but there was some positive signs, you know, there. The narrative of him could be totally shifted if the offside rule is fit yeah. for purpose, which which it isn't. Like, he, you watch that a hundred times, he's onside a hundred times, and the fact that it's a shoulder and an, against the foot is ridiculous to me. Um, and it's one of those obvious error ones where I think if the lino doesn't flag... I don't think it gets overturned, but because he has flagged, I don't think it gets overturned. And then you wonder what that does for the narrative and for a player's confidence and everything like that. But this is where I think the Tuchel element is really interesting to watch now over the next couple of league games in Norwich and Newcastle and, and the big knockout games. And even after Palace, him putting in effort off the ball and him, that was that's my biggest issue with Lukaku is how ineffective he is off the ball. Because yeah. as we talk about Liverpool moving forward, like I think the lack of turnovers leading to something is what makes us so stale. Um, then for him to put in that effort and get a goal out in Abu Dhabi and then still be dropped for the important games kind of suggests Tuchel might have made his mind up a little bit and kind of suggests that, you know what, I've tried enough. I've tried the formations. I've tried different support um, players. I've just, um, we're going to go with Kai now, which I, I mean, as we talk about Lukaku's solutions, I think could still work. You asked me, I think episode four or five, can they play together? I've seen a lot of little instances that I've been sending you in clips here and there mm. with Pulisic and, and Havertz where I actually think they could 
still play together even now it would take a massive shift to what we do with rom um but i think there has been signs it has been positive little things that you can cling to but it goes back to the whole issue of this is a hundred million pound footballer this is meant to be the thing that put a champions league winning team within touching distance of a premier league and it's probably done the opposite it's probably set us back um rather than pushed us forward and i feel like we're having to start from square one rip the rip the blueprint up and and go again and and try the season has felt like a one long drawn out experiment way to try experiments try and get the most out of lukaku um when to be honest is whether it be off the field distractions as well with the interview and everything, it just hasn't really it hasn't shown the evidence of a quality of player that deserves that level of tweaking and pandering to um yeah yeah, and I guess that's where I'm at with it. And and again, even I'm trying to be positive about it because I think he is here. I don't think this is something that you can just quickly sail him in the summer. I kind of think probably we've talked about this in previous episodes. It's probably the best solution. I think the best case scenario is have your season, score some more goals. Great, thanks. And we'll, we'll get you back to Italy where you're maybe more suited and maybe happier. Um, is probably the best scenario, but I, I don't think that's particularly realistic, although we'll see what this sort of ownership change means in terms of having to move people on big wages. But but I think there are solutions, and I think it's interesting what we have tried and haven't tried um, relative to what has been successful for him in the past. Yeah, and I think I'll, I'll ask you that, that solution aspect because I think we're both actually of quite a, quite a similar mind, really, in what might potentially unlock him, but I think we'll finish with that point. So... One thing I wanted to look at in particular, and I think again, you know, looking at how I wouldn't say the, the conversation sort of got reignited, but certainly a big talking point when you have, you know, strikers of the quality of Shearer, Wright and Lineker talking about service and things like that. I think there becomes a, you know, there's almost like a weight behind their opinion that I think people have just accepted it at, at face value. Um um, without naming uh, a publication that has a very particular subscription model, <laughs> let's put it that way. Um I remember seeing a a still in a game that was elaborating on the lack of service that Lukaku gets. So like, you know, the he's making all these runs, he's doing all this stuff, but nobody's passing him the ball. And the still that they took was of Antonio Rudiger sort of around the halfway line, kind of in that sort of uh, centre-back position, you know, 10, 15 yards in off the touchline that he's normally in. Um, and they drew this kind of score hero-esque line from from Rudiger's foot, <laughs> which probably, I mean, I mean, honestly, yes, it looked like, you know, if you had a combination of Andrea Perlo and David Beckham and some sort of hybrid child, maybe that child could make that pass. Um, but, you know, if you're talking about the Fabregas's of the world, maybe there's two or three other players that I you know, maybe I don't think of the top of my head that could have made that pass. Um, but there does seem to be this kind of narrative around him that every run he makes, he should be receiving the ball, that he's doing the absolute utmost to, to receive possession or any, every single time somebody should be able to find him. I think the other one that you sort of spoke to me about in WhatsApp as well was the the Havertz, you know, the Havertz uh, where he, he failed to cross the ball or, or play some insane cross to him where first and foremost to get the cross across would have involved a ridiculous, like almost like half folly without even really touching the ball kind of bit of technique from Havertz. And secondly, Lukaku hasn't made a single movement to move off of Mark Gerhi. Um, so I think I'm, what I'm just going to say is in terms of the, let's say the the service argument that's being made, oh, Chelsea aren't, aren't necessarily giving him the service. Do you want to just debunk that with some examples or just go through why that maybe isn't, it's not as simple as Chelsea aren't getting the ball to Lukaku? I think the whole Lukaku situation is um, 
it's a it's a litany of compounding factors. I think it's not as simple as anything, and I think loads of things have have sort of combined to make it an awkward, strange fit. Um, there is, I mean, talk about we will talk about that match of the day sort of example where let's not forget Lineker, Wright, and Shearer were all strikers. Now you could argue that that means they know what they're on about when it comes to strikers. You could also argue that means that they've never had to pick a pass out in their life because they've always been on the receiving end of it. And there is a degree of strikers that aren't getting service right. Cool. So it was, it's like the opposite of the goalkeeper's union. It was almost a striker's union. It's like, well, <laughs> he's not firing. It's because no one's passing. It's like, I would have been interested to see uh, one of the midfield pundits or one of the or the back three pundits or something like that. Because, yeah, some, some of the examples were ridiculous. There was one um, fanned out to, to Havertz on the left and, and one of the yeah, score hero line is perfect. It, <laughs> he wanted him to... They wanted him to slap it with the outside of his left boot and perfectly put Lukaku through. I think there was the cross one you just referenced. There was there was a lack of intensity in the movement from Rom, and that is a really consistent theme where fails to generate separation, doesn't he? Quite regularly. Yeah, there's no that. separation there, and, and, and it, this is where it's compounding. It's like um, there, there's as many examples of him wanting it early where it is on and not getting it as there are him wanting early, like from Rudiger, where there's 15 yards between him and the goalkeeper, which is obviously going to just get collected. And then there'll be um, a Jorginho over the top, like against Liverpool in the final. That's the sort of ball he's wanting. It's fallen into his lap and he doesn't get it under control and doesn't use his body to really guard it against Kanate. And then um, the Trevor Chalabar through ball for the offside goal. It's maybe a split second late, but then the amount of times you see Rom off, maybe he should know by this point to hold his run for an extra half second. I think it is it, so much what about her and, and, oh, well, he's moving and they're not passing it. And then the other one is, well, you know, he's offside, so he needs to learn to hold it. And then the crosses, yeah, the, the lack of near post movement from him is really, yeah. really poor. Um, like even the, the goal in Abu Dhabi in the semi-final, he was very, very fortunate. There was no movement. He just fell to him. Um, and it, is such a difficult thing to see objectively because in the same game, you'll see two examples where he has made a good move and then four where he's not. And then there's the transition issue and it's like, okay, cool. Havertz is able to float across the front line, be in the left and right channel, drop off, pop it. Um, he's actually a better back-to-goal player than Lukaku and he can play passes and not lose the ball. Whereas Lukaku is... This is, again, it's the what about her. It's okay, we don't want him just stood there in the box because you're basically playing 10 v 11. But then is he technically good enough to come out and combine in tight spaces without causing transition opportunities for the other team that we then have to worry about? And it's just, there's, there's a lack of chemistry, there's a lack of quality, and there's just a lack of clear um, understanding of, of what sort of chances we want to um, create for him. And I, I think... Part of it is, though, just need, he needs to come and get involved in the play. I, I, it's, it's a strange one because you see an Everton and an Inter how much he loved that inside right channel. I know we're going to touch on that in a minute. And then for him to just not be using it at all here, you wonder if it's instruction. But then you also wonder in his sort of last few run of games, who's been on the right-hand side a lot? Hakim Ziyech. Well, obviously, Lukaku is not going to be in the right channel if Ziyech is there because that's such a, a, a player who's so dominant on that side. So then it's... Do you know what I mean? It's just there's so many little things that counteract against each other, conflict with each other, get in the way of, of anything really developing that it just, 
I think that's why people struggle to see say what's wrong and they just say, ah, oh, service. Because it's so many little things. It's, it's like death by a thousand cuts. There's so many little yeah, things and little bits of miscommunication. It. I think one thing that I do find interesting, though, is you look at... Uh, uh, people talked about Inter as... Um, he's developed as a player and he's a different player because of what he did at Inter in a front two, in a slower league, in a league where he had so much more space to run in, in a less physical league where it's not that he got technically better at Inter, it's that he was stronger relative to the defender so had less um, disruption and, and challenge on him and, and what defenders get away with there is less and everything like that. So he had more time, more space, uh, more stability when he's playing back to goal. So what, so what, I kind of just forgot the, I just said, you know what, forget the inner thing. I'm done with the inner thing. Yes, he was able to play out wide more on inner. Yes, he was able to get in behind more on inner, but it's a totally different league. So I thought to myself, right, knowing that we were going to chat about Lukaku, I went in and I looked at every single one of his 42 goals for United. Of those, so I've, I've kind of broken these down into little sections and I find it interesting comparing to, to what, we are doing with him and and this is me again i'm doing the same thing i did pre-season i'm trying to be as support i'm trying to be positive with it if you ask me as a fan i just say he's rubbish to be honest <laughs> but but this isn't the podcast for that if i was on a, a normal london is blue then he's rubbish but it, as we're trying to break it down and we're trying to come with solutions let's just let's just try and be a bit more supportive i, I looked at all 42 goals for united so i i categorize eight of these 42 as kind of capitalization goals like it's fallen from a loose ball um it's it's a rebound off a long shot that sort of thing right eight of his 42 were like that right place right time Rashford's had a go from 30 yards it's been spilled into his path um there's been a back pass from the defender um no one's there he's through on goal that sort of thing so yeah. if you take eight eight of those away from the 42 we've got we're left with um 34 right Three of those I'm kind of dismissing because three of the 34 were deep, long punts, which for whatever reason on a Tuchel, he, he, he doesn't like that lack of control. He likes to build things a bit more purposefully. So we don't really do that. So now let's take away those 11. So we're left with 31. Of the remaining 31 goals, and this is going to lean into where the right channel stuff and, and where I think the best solution is moving forward. The remaining 31 goals he scored for Manchester United, 19 of them were crosses from the left wing. Seven of them were crosses from the inside left channel. So maybe a deeper cross. That's 26 out of the remaining 31 goals that have come from his left side as he approaches the ball from the right-hand side of the pitch. Yep. Anyone who's watched Rom can see he is a hugely one-footed player. Now, again... Every time you bring something up about Lukaku, you think, hold on, why have you spent 100 billion on that? But we've done it. It's done. Sunk cost. So he's he's a hugely one-sided player. He's a hugely left-footed player. 26 of his 31 goals that weren't lofts over the top or rebounds, he has come from the right-hand half of the pitch to a cross from the left-hand side. Seven of those are at the back post. 23 of those are essentially just tap-ins. But all of them have allowed him to come from the right and attack it on his left side. This is something that we touched on early, 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 maybe the first ever episode in the Super Cup because we were crossing from the right-hand side. It's the technical and we stuff, had, isn't it? Technical detail yeah. for a left-footed player coming, moving right to left onto your strong foot is such an, well, I'm not going to say an easy finish, but it's such a more natural finish for you to open 100%. up your body. And, and, yeah. now, and, now, and now you consider the player who's not good with his right foot. 
right? And I'm not saying he can't score with his right foot. He's scored a few. You know, Arsenal was a cross that came from the right. Um, and we're very right-hand uh, dominant. We're very right-hand dominant. And and then you look, you're talking about, obviously availability doesn't make this an exact science because he's missed a lot of games, but you're talking about delivery from Marcus Alonso compared to Reese James. Um, and Mason Mount. Mason Mount plays on the right-hand side a lot for us in terms of front threes, and Mason Mount's tasked with a lot of crosses, a lot of balls. So we we have been this right-hand-sided team, and then we've got Alonso, Lukaku, Havertz, left-footed players attacking the balls from the right, and it's just a bit of a weird, um, awkward thing that seems to have really gone overlooked. If you look at the actual goals that he scored from us, we, there's hardly any that have come in from the left-hand side. Um, the great header against Villa in the 3-1 win, that was from Hudson-Odoi on the left-hand side. And all of his, it was one of the goals where he looked like a £90 million penalty box player. Um, Chesterfield is in from the left. Um, and then Luton and Arsenal, you know, Werner and Rhys James crosses have come from the right, but at least that's just good movement. He's in there, he's in the box, he's in that red zone in, in the six-yard area. But I did find it fascinating that United had clearly twigged that this guy is so left-footed dominant that the ball has to come from the left and we just that's, don't really seem to have. And I, for whatever reason, Tuchel has him playing Mount, one of our chief creative players, Ziyech, one of our chief creative players, obviously on the right. So much comes, Reese. so much comes from that side. Mm. I think we are missing a trick there slightly. So I, I don't, this isn't to excuse Rom. I think the performance has been really poor. Um, I don't think he's a good back-to-goal player. I think he's a poacher who we should maybe shift to that side of the pitch. But I just found it striking when I was watching this that 26 of those 31 were, bam, in from the left, in from the left, in from the left. And he looked confident, he looked natural, um, and he looked like he was able to approach the ball that way. It's interesting. That's really, really interesting, actually, because uh, I know that uh, in our WhatsApp conversations, like, I always mock uh, like really symmetrical passing networks. You know, that's, that's sort of one of, my, one of my WhatsApp MOs is to mock very symmetrical-looking uh, passing networks in a game. And I, I always have a theory, and I think, again, it's it's borne out in teams that I've played at um, in, in well, both rugby and, and football as well. Um, you want to be in a position in terms of your, the structure of your team, you know, people see perfectly balanced sides as a positive. But I suppose when you have players like Lukaku and players that would benefit from more of an asymmetric structure, i.e. very left-hand dominant, you want to attack the left hand so you can get the, the sort of right crosses and surface in, into him. Um, it almost feels, as you say, yeah, that we're not necessarily, I wouldn't say that Tuchel isn't necessarily thinking about that in terms of the way we play, um, but we, maybe the, the the players that we have in the available in the squad, particularly now Reese is, is back in the side, I think Trevor Chalabar adds a lot of passing quality from, from that right centre-back spot. As you say, Hakim Ziyech before his injury, the form he was, had, he was having from that side of the pitch, Mason Mount plays over there a lot. Um, all and also on, 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 there, on, yeah. the, on the on the contrary, sorry, Rudiger is our left-sided player. Who's a maniac. If you, if, if you go, yeah, but he's also has no left foot. So if you go back yeah. and you watch the Luton game, um, Malang Sar played, uh, and I think Saul played a few very early clip balls over the top, curling towards the strikers. Obviously got Timo and Rom up top. Rudiger was on the right-hand side of that game and Rudiger, they weren't technically excellent, but three or four times in that game tried early clip balls and um one of them unfortunately was was when steer the goalkeeper ha had his injury and there was another one that was a really awkward bounce for the keeper or Werner nearly got his head on and i think that is a, that's another thing rudiger is is one of our pre, pre like pr pr prominent people who bring the ball out of the back 
and he's not able to play any early balls that actually curve towards Brom or or whoever's up there. He's always checking in, having one of his wild shots or, or slipping in somebody else. But it, 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 you've, you've listed some really good examples there of how right side dominant we are. But then there's another example of why on the left hand side we actually lack because our, our guy who brings the ball out can't play anything that curves towards the striker yeah. and and it, it makes a big difference yeah that's uh it's, it's interesting as well because as you say i think there are times i think when, when really go again if you have a, a player who is competent on the left foot or naturally left footed there are maybe angles certainly opening up to the wing back and just opening up in general towards the left hand side of the pitch so i think you know we kind of miss some of those opportunities there and, and actually as you say how that then sort of filters through into him being sort of the main uh, progressive player in, in the back three as well in terms of carrying. Yeah, I mean, it, you're definitely not presenting yourself with the best opportunities to find um, sort of well-angled passes in behind the defence there. And it kind of leads into sort of the final portion of of, of part one here. And I'm just going to give it its branding because I absolutely love it. We're going with hashtag Big Mo Salah. <laughs> so hashtag Big Mo Salah is the branding for sort of the final part here. And and just just a quick one on this, by the way. It's come from pre-season yeah. when I went back and listened and you said, do you want him to be a Big Mo Salah? And I said, yeah, <laughs> because I want Kai to carry on doing what he was doing last season. And I saw Rom as being able to basically come in and do the Werner role of, of running the channels and being a ball in behind and, and everything like that. Now he's not got... Well, we'll talk in detail about why it's not going to be perfect. But um, but yeah, that's where it's come from. It's come from what we wanted in preseason and what we have seen none of, not even mid-game. There is no rotation. There is no fanning out. There was there was a little bit bright in a way, but him and ZH were kind of just in each other's way. Um, and we've seen none of it. And I find it fascinating that a player who's so left-footed left dominant and has plenty in evident evidence of Belgium of being effective running onto balls from the right wing being able to see all angles of the goal on his strong side I find it fascinating that we've not done it at all do you want to give people the that the outline of the theory on why playing Romelu Lukaku as an inside forward or inside right so basically a wide center forward on the right hand side what is the theory behind putting there? What what are the positives? And as you say, examples from, I think, Inter, maybe, you know, Man United, certainly Everton, I think would be useful to just give people, because I think, again, the big Mo Salah thing maybe is a bit ludicrous, but when you actually, as you say, sort of look at it a bit more rationally, it's possibly the best way of, of actually utilising his strengths and actually making him a, a more prominent part of the team. Yeah, and I'd, I'll start with the negatives because clearly Tuchel doesn't want to do it. Yes. Because there is... <laughs> the biggest <laughs> because, yeah, I mean, he doesn't want to do it. There is, we have, we have what, 35 games across all competitions now of evidence that he doesn't want to do it. And I find it interesting that there was an Henri quote that said, oh, Rom likes to stay in the middle that sort of floated around like a month ago. And, but you go and you watch Inter and he, 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 was, he had the freedom of the right-hand side of the pitch and Belgium, some of his biggest performances have been as, as, a, as a right winger, effectively. Now the problems are, and I can see why Tuchel doesn't, want to do this the reason i'm suggesting it is and think it'll work is because you have to make a hundred million man work the reason i i can see it not working first off is the technical quality isn't there to really drop off in build-up phases and and contribute and have it in tight spaces and come into midfield and play and i think that's the biggest thing i think just tuku doesn't trust lukaku's quality on the ball enough and obviously that's a damning indictment but i think that is 
at the end of the day what um what the issue is but i go back to i've been looking at a lot of lineup data and and stuff over the last couple of days when we signed lukaku lukaku's debut at chelsea was flanked by mountain havertz so that when you when tuchel had this new 100 million pound toy his idea was playing with mountain havertz we saw it again um once against spurs and then we've only seen it again once for the entire rest of the season uh, against Palmeiras, funnily enough. So he clearly doesn't like that blend. It's, it's one of the least played uh, front threes, which I find strange just because you've got Mount, you've got Havertz, and still it has managed to be one of the least least played. I, I've been watching the games recently, and I see so many examples where Pulisic, who I think has been in really good form lately, by the way, I'm not not getting too excited, but I think he's contributed really nicely here in final third. And I think he's been a really important guy in terms of getting us from A to B, our, our half of the pitch to the opposition, half of the pitch in terms of turning and, and driving. But Havertz as a nine will, will float. Havertz as a nine will drop off. Havertz as a nine will create overloads here, there and everywhere. I think you can still play Havertz from the right and rom up top for the big sort of long balls and just have them interchange and have Rom be on the blind side with the ball on the left, all of defenders looking at it, no one knowing where Rom is and him cutting him from that side onto the back post into the uh, six yard box. I think he can see the pitch. We've talked on an episode, I'm sure we have previously where right footed players like to play on the left and left footed players like to play yeah. on the right, especially wingers because it's, you, you can see the whole pitch. So if Rom has the ball on the left, and he's looking straight down. That's all he can see. If he can open up on the right-hand side, he can see the whole pitch. And all of a sudden, when you see more, the decisions become easier. The techniques become easier. He can slide in Havertz. He could clip it far post to Marcus Alonso. He could just put Reese James in, which would be a very... Like, we've got the overlap now. We've got Reese back. That's a massive part of how we play. And I just... I, I don't see how you don't at least try it that front three or, or ZH going inside and Rom coming outside, I think there's there's maybe a log jam there of qualities and, and stuff and maybe that's got in the way, but Kai seems to have this number nine position under under wraps at the moment. So I just thought, I just, it's what I think would work. I just think it would work. I think you've got him coming from the back post, blind side, not as obvious um, in terms of where his movements are coming from. I think the play will be easier for the reasons I just mentioned. Um, you look at his United goals and how many of them came from the back post and attacking the ball from the right-hand side that comes from the left-hand side. And it's still, if you want to go to something more conventional with Rom up top and then Kai dropping in and, and Mason has been flanking him, then you can do that. You can also have Mason do what he did so well against Burnley in the second half where he drops into a three more. Something we've done plenty of times under Tuchel and under Lampard. And then you just have Kai and Rom there as, as a two. Um, which again is something that has very, very rarely been tried. Um, Rom, Rom and Kai as a two, I think we've seen once, maybe maybe twice. Whenever we go with a two, it's always Rom and Timo, always Rom and Timo, let's go direct, let's go direct. I think there's actually some evidence that, that isn't the worst thing, Rom and Timo. They, you know, it's not great, but... So I think that's why. I think the problem is the build-up, but if you're gonna... If you have Kante, Kovacic, Reese James, these play, Trevo, these players on the right-hand side... Just have him as this Ramdoiter, have him as this spare player. At least add some unpredictability to the movement where he can run towards goal at the angle that favours a curled finish. Um, 
And I think when we've gone with the three, uh, our 4-3-3 is interesting as well in that when Rom is there, the, the closest players against Palace in support weren't the wingers. It was Kante and Kova. Yeah. Um, and I found, I found that interesting as well. It was almost like a, an old Christmas tree sort of... Um, uh, sorry, not Kante and Kovo, it was Kante and Pulisic because Pulisic played left left centre mid in that game. It was like an old Christmas tree and they were they were getting out to him. And so, you know, you've got Kante who can support in that way and, and Kovacic who can support in that way. And I just think that, that we're at this point now where it's not working. Go towards something that has worked for him in the past. Um, and Pulisic is, you're not going to lose a whole lot off the ball, pressure-wise, pressing-wise. Pulisic isn't, Pulisic has some really good form lately, but he's not, I think he's the worst presser out of ZH, Mount, Havertz. So so for me, that's that's something at least worth trying, big Mo Salah, because Kai has... Kai, we are better with Kai as the nine. That's just yeah. a fact. Um, and I think having Kai there means he can go out into that right-hand side and combine as well. It's not, it's not relying too much on Rom technically beating people, um, but it is going to stuff that has clearly worked for him and and he's got goals out of before. Yeah, that's, uh, I, I think, to be honest with you, it, it makes complete sense in terms of we're kind of approaching, and I appreciate that this is sort of the first season, but, you know, Lukaku, I think, is in a position in his career where he is largely what he is going to be as a player. You're not going to see some sort of drastic change to him being a, a massive counter-pressing, pressing threat from number nine and, and playing um, sort of in a manner which is is sort of not, I suppose, really reflective of, of his career to date. So, I think the the big Mo Salah thing is is for me certainly makes an absolute ton of sense. And to your point, in terms of the guy surrounding him, if you can't get away with cheating a bit in your right wing position, if you have Reese James, if you've got Chalobah, if you've got Kante and Cover, and and, and mate, you've got all these players who are excellent defensively, can cover vast amounts of space and can probably give you know Lukaku the confidence that he doesn't have to be, you know, like uh, Willian or Mason Mount playing at wide that that level of defensive ability. Um, and I'd, I'd also argue that I'd also argue that you have so much less of the pitch to cover as a winger compared to the strike. Obviously, if you're not great as a central player at pushing the press to one side, then they can pass either side of you. Uh, against Liverpool, we forced it down Trent's side a lot, um, and I'm thinking that was half half of us doing that, but also half of them preferring preferring that side. A lot of teams are right side dominant because right sided players like to open up and, and play it down. So you you can prioritize defending on one side as well, and I think if we had a left hand side of Saar slash Alonso and Kovacic and um, Mount on that side and Rudiger, like we, we we'd be so strong on one side that you can prioritize pushing the the opposition that way with the press as well. And I think just you only have to go back and look at the Palace goal. The Palace goal actually came from us going to a four two three one where we had Ruben and Kova sitting and. Ziyech only gets that far post effort because Kai's run near post, Rom stood there in the box and it has taken all of the defenders' attention. And Tyreek Mitchell would be blocking that and heading that away on Ziyech if there isn't the bodies in there. Um, and I think that's another thing where Kai is much more likely to make that unselfish near post run. Um, for whatever reason, Rom just isn't doing those. It's not great, <laughs> but at least it gets you another player in the box. Yeah who has shown against Palace, against Burnley, can be a threat in there. And and Rom can just be on the back stick on often the the fullback or that mismatch against the fullback or just ghosting in with the momentum of his size and his speed in terms of attacking the ball on the blind side. And I, 
I think it has come from just a thing of we've done, we haven't done the thing that's worked for him before. Like you say, it's only the first season, but this is looking like a horrendous bit of business. <laughs> Since that interview, only goals coming against Chesterfield, the Club World Cup and Luton. It's not ideal. Um, it's, it's not, not, it's not the response of somebody who's really sort of uh, knuckling down and is, is determined to kind of prove their, their value at the club, is it? Let's, let, let's be blunt about it at this point. It's, it's definitely something to watch and I'm fascinated um, in in just, yeah, what Tuchel decides to do with it because the, the recent evidence doesn't look good. Yeah, I completely agree on that. And uh, I think that draws part one, the look back at uh, Romelu Lukaku to, to a close. And before heading into part two, I just want to thank the sponsors for commercially helping the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to part two of episode seven of the Tinker Banner podcast. Uh, Yasin and I have just finished, if you've listened to the first part, discussing uh, Romelu Lukaku in great depth. I think we've we've finally come to the solution to get him firing. If uh, Thomas Tuchel ever listens to our podcast, and I have, I'm absolutely under no illusions that he does, um, but if we see Big Mo Salah actually happen before the end of the season, we will take some modicum of credit there. Um, part two, I think we're looking at, at calling this trust the process little bit nod to our American cousins, but also I think Tuchel has shown certainly time and time again, that he's a very big fan of underlying numbers, analytics, sort of looking at the performance as a whole rather than sort of as an, as an outcome. Um, and we're specifically focusing this time on Chelsea's performance against Liverpool in the League Cup final. Um, and then sort of a little bit more of a broader assessment, sort of juxtaposing Chelsea against Liverpool and seeing how that plays out. So I want to start this section off before asking uh, Yaz a little bit more of a detailed question, but just start this off by making a bit of a statement, which I think hopefully sort of sets the tone for, for this section of the of the pod. So under Thomas Tuchel, I think Chelsea have invariably outplayed and probably at times tactically outfought Liverpool. Um, but that hasn't always translated to victories that maybe the performances have have deserved. And if I'm extending that a little bit to a kind of broader set of, of points to make, um, I think in each time that we've played Liverpool under Tuchel, that we've had probably the best opportunities to win and certainly some very significant opportunities opportunities to win, including, including the tool, including the, the red card game and, and, and loads of sort of things that we saw in the League Cup final. So I want to start off by Yasuo saying, when we're looking in, you know, into sort of the Cup final specifically, what is it about Tuchel's kind of game model, his tactics, the structure that he employs both in possession and off the ball that, that you think has, has generated so much success in this particular game? Because it's it's a recurring theme, but I felt in this game we were very unlucky not to win in, in, in sort of regulation time. Um, and I, it just felt like we were the team in the ascendancy and had the better of the, the match. So what what is it? Is it in possession? Is it out possession? What's, what are the, the key facets here for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I was there. Um, and I, so I, I saw it once live and then... Saw it another, like we always rewatch them before this podcast and stuff. And I think we just nullified everything really, really well. And I, I, I put a tweet out at the time, basically, that Thomas Tuchel can coach the shit out of any one off game. And I think that's what carried us through the Champions League final. I think City this season, he struggled. Um, but like you say, every single encounter with Klopp, I've come out thinking we were the better team. Um, that was no different in the League Cup final. It's no different in Stamford Bridge um, in this past winter. I think. I think first off, um, our back three, our back five, lends itself quite well against um, what Liverpool get their success on. Liverpool build so much of their success on um, 
two wide players and, and Jota sort of ghosting in off of blind side of defenders in between the gaps of, of a fullback and a centre back um, and, and getting there quickly as well. Their transitions are are different level and, and obviously what they're massively based on. They lead the league in shot ending, high turnovers. Um, <laughs> we'll we talk about us compared to them in a minute because we're second bottom in the Premier League um, <laughs> on that particular little metric. Um and I think we just, in terms of when we do need to to dig in and, and have a back five, I think we are very well suited to counteracting that. I think um, Salah barely got on the ball at all. Um, yeah. I think I think a lot of their attempt to build was maybe start down the right with Trent, um, switch it out to Diaz to try and isolate against Trev, um, and then Salah have the sort of the finishing touch rather than any build-up touches. But I think that might have been their intention, but that might have just been us as well because they built down the right a lot more often against us uh, at Stamford Bridge um, we kind of had this little torture chamber of Kovacic Rudiger and Alonso around Salah <laughs> at what felt like all times and there was just no way to get the ball in there um, even and then when Trev got uh, when Trent got the ball um, Alonso did a really really good job on him Mason did a really really good job on him just preventing anything really coming through the, the one time he did get a glimpse at something was that Mane header um, where he kind of ghosted in and support trailed and supported the attack a bit late, but I think we just totally nullified their their right hand side. Um, Alonso maybe had his best game in the Chelsea shirt. I think um, definitely his best yeah. game that didn't involve a goal. I thought Alonso was fantastic. I thought he was he didn't get caught out defensively once. Um, he added so much in terms of getting us up the pitch. He just played just really simple, good build up didn't waste it when he was high, didn't just lump crosses in. They were clearly not looking to waste anything and risk a transition there. Um, but also I just feel like similar to the Stanford Bridge game, Kante and Kovacic was the the perfect midfield pair for for a Liverpool game. And, and I think the only real joy I feel we allowed them to have um, was through Diaz on the left-hand side. And then I actually, at the time I thought, you know, Trev's done a good job here. Um, he's been isolated a lot because Aspi got caught a few times a bit high. Um, and and 1v1, a winger of that sort of quality, you're, you're usually going to lose. But I actually watched it back again and I sort of logged what I considered a 1v1 duel between those two. Um, and I had Trev coming out on top of Diaz like 6'3", 6'4". And that's before we even get to that 1v1 that, that Diaz was forced onto his left um, by Trev's recovery really really tight angle you have to it would have been had to be a screamer to, to beat Mendy from there so so I think Trev did a fantastic job um especially playing half the game with with stitches needed of, of locking down Diaz and I felt like that was the only real joy they got I know that they they did well from set pieces I think set pieces we were we were at risk yeah, through a lot it's part of their remote um, isn't it yes they're really, really yeah, good and set they're, piece team. they're a fantastic set piece team. even the the Matip goal when we talked about Anthony Barry and stuff a few episodes ago, I, I mentioned the one set piece we don't really do is lofted far post headed back across goal. Um, I think I mentioned that on the pod and that's yeah. that's what they essentially scored from. And so I find that one interesting. But but I think we just locked down really well. Like You, you, you go against Liverpool and you lock down Trent and, and Salah, more or less, um, you're going to come out with a chance. And I think we did really well. I think, I think aside from Diaz having some some good moments. I think we've really, really limited them. I think Kova and Kante are fantastic in the middle. 
Um, and that's before we start talking about what we did on the ball. Yeah, the I think the the interesting thing there, and certainly I think one of the things I've noticed, kind of maybe it's becoming sort of a recurring theme, is the the one off ability to handle the sort of the, the I suppose the ball into Salah. Whether as you say that is the the finishing touch aspect where he is coming on to service from other players, or whether that is affecting him him in build up. I think Rudiger in particular really relishes that that one-on-one challenge at times um yeah. with with Salah you know he loves getting overly physical and aggressive and I think he can play that role really well but I think the surprising thing and I think what you alluded to there was uh, Marcos Alonso was, was genuinely outstanding I thought I thought that was just a you know a, a game that I didn't really well, let's say okay everyone is capable of pulling out a worldie every now and then but I mean the level that he played at that was was surprising but because you know, defensively at times, he's been embarrassed a bit by his kind of diminutive, tricky wingers and guys who've got good footwork. And yet in a cup final, maybe it's the Wembley thing for him that he he pulls out performances there. But I felt he had a really, really strong game. And, and again, Rudiger and, and I thought Cover and Kante, they are, I think certainly at this point in time, the best midfield for, for the Liverpool game. They were fantastic in the league game earlier uh, in the season at Stamford Bridge, but obviously replicated that, that performance against uh, Liverpool as well. Um... Let's talk about the possession side of things here, Yas, because I think what I want to, to focus on here, particularly with, with Tuchel's kind of approach, we've seen Chelsea sides historically going back to the dawn of the Mourinho era 1.0, being able to defend excellently against really top teams and you know, having that counter-attacking threat. This is, I think, now kind of evolving beyond us just soaking up pressure and hitting teams on the counter. Um we, we were a real threat in this game. I think we were speaking about just before recording this, that we felt that we had the better chances. We were certainly the more threatening side. So if we're looking at sort of the balance of, of play and, and how we're sort of actually sort of making a dent in these games rather than being maybe a little bit passive and waiting for that one or two moments to counter, how how is Tuchel setting the team up to be more aggressive, more on the front foot and actually taking the game to to Liverpool in these sorts of games because it seems to be, again, as I say, a recurring theme that we're not just content to sit back and try and counter or try and play on the break or nick a goal. We actually want to get on the ball and be aggressive. Yeah, I think um, when the Rom Werner, the Lukaku Werner sub happened, I think I, I liked the sub at the time as well um, in terms of like sort of late, late, of, late stages of normal time. I think... After that point, it felt like we went back to that kind of old long ball transitionals, get out from really deep areas. Yeah. I think when the legs had gone a little bit from people like Kovacic, Mason, um, who obviously got hooked for for Werner, um, I think then we sort of saw that long ball hit the channels, everything like that. But beforehand, I think I think we played through the pressure fantastically well. I think this is going to link to another part of today's podcast. I really think games like this is where having Thiago Silva there at the back is so valuable. I think he, if you, you, you go back and you watch all the good sequences of possession, I think a lot of them came from Thiago Silva just nullifying something quickly. And then they're not Hollywood passes. So it's not David Luiz-esque in terms of 50 yarders across, across the pitch, but he will just always first time find a way out of pressure. There was three or four times where it was a clear, clear consensus decision to to hit Alonso early. So might 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 sweep something up, a Mane run or something, or or win an individual duel. And then as soon as he gets it, a lot of the time he was he was curling that ball out to Alonso. And then Liverpool are quite narrow in their press. They get a lot of bodies quite 
um, compact in how they get you. So those diagonal passes, I think, broke a lot of pressure there. And then from then, we had that little wide triangle or diamond of Mason and and um, Havertz to combine with. I think Kovacic and Pulisic had massive roles as well in terms of get, like, getting it deep and then being able to turn and combine um, and drive past pressure. I think Kovacic is, I think it doesn't need to be said he's having his best season as a, as a Chelsea player this year. Yeah. And I think the final was another fantastic game from him. Um, I, I would actually argue, I think he was better in the final than he was in the Stamford Bridge game. I think every time he got it, there was, I mean, maybe like one instance of dilly dallying a little bit in deep positions, but every time he got it, he was on the turn. He was looking to to progress it. Um, two two counter-attacks sprung from him just getting onto, onto midfield really well. And I think, I think we just got a really good balance of of starting things nicely and controlled from Silva, being able to break that press with with Kovacic. And again, we've, we've just talked about Lukaku in the first part of recording. I think Havertz was outstanding as well in terms of those overloads that he creates. He was coming out to to combine with Mason on the left-hand side, but he was, he was probably more of a... Um, issue long for long balls and for direct balls along the floor than, than Ron was when he came on. I think he was able to be the tip of a diamond of a lot of good stuff and combine and, and make that overload in the middle, give us a way out. Um, and I think, I think, I think there was different things. I think Trev stepped out what two or three times and played some really nice direct balls in, um, Reese coming on allowed us that diagonal clip to switch play a lot better. Um, than when, than when Aspi was on, I think Alonso was mixed, um, short and long passing really, really well. And I think this is where Pulisic's credit um, comes. I think he's had a string of some really good games, Lille, second half against Burnley and the final, where he's actually wriggled out of pressure really well. Um, he laid on that Mason Mount chance where he hit the post. And I think that's where we've really suffered compared to a city where our talented players are meant to be able to slalom past two or three and, and take that pressure and do something individual. I think Pulisic had two or three moments in the final where I think he was really, really good um, for that as well. And I think I think every every chance felt um, worked on. Most chances felt like we were sp spreading the ball widely nicely, hitting diagonals, overloading, isolating, getting early crosses in. And it just felt like a really complete performance. I don't think there was anyone who played poorly. Everyone was brave on the ball. I think Liverpool probably had uh, the advantage in terms of territory. I think if you watched that, you could be guilty for thinking, oh, we counter-attacked. Because I think territory-wise, they probably had the advantage. It probably played more in our half than theirs. But it didn't feel like a smash and grab, like you say. It felt very controlled. It felt like we were hitting our spots that we wanted to. We knew where our spaces were. And I think a lot of them were diagonally out from Silva. Um, can we switch the ball quickly? And then playing off of, off of Kai receiving to feet. And I think I think it was um, just a really complete performance. And, and the chances we had... The Mason chance, just, I mean, which one, yeah. you might be saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But um, the, the 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 post was one in terms of the one that Pulisic comes inside and, and lofts it over. Um, but the one where he's hit it wide um, off of off of some really good work, I'd, yeah, it's, uh, we've had three chances that Mason it will be fuming at. But um, it's the one where it was a, it was a counter-attack, but it was... Kovacic latched on some pressure in midfield. And again, it was a Christian Pulisic carry, slipped in Havertz, cut inside, great cross to, to Mason. But um, yeah, it just felt very controlled. I didn't feel really, at re even when they did encroach in terms of territory and they had some good set-piece chances, 
I felt in control of a lot of the game. Yeah, I'd uh, I'd agree with that. It's, you know, there are times when you watch Chelsea play against high level opponents and you're sitting there generally terrified that something's going to happen because you're not in control. You're seeing wave after wave of pressure. You know, historically, we have had performances where we have defended for our lives. You know, this was about as far kind of away from that feeling as I can recall. Um, one thing I wanted to touch on, because I, maybe maybe not too long on this, but the, the, the Lukaku non-goal or the offside there, I know we touched on it a little bit in part one when, when looking at Lukaku, but... I mean, I just want to, there was something that you said, I think it was the the spirit of the law or there was some phrase that you used that I think was really sort of pertinent at the time. But what what about this this new kind of offside mechanism law do you think makes it just slightly redundant in terms of the game? Because, you know, as you say, 100 times out of 100, you watch that, uh, it, it's a goal. The same VAR official then gives a, a decision to Liverpool in in the following game that he's being a VAR official on. I'm not suggesting there's some conspiracy theory there, but you would assume the same person consistently applies the, the you know the rule in the same manner because it's the same guy looking at an almost identical situation. So, w- what are we doing with these offsides, uh, Yas, at the moment? And, and is there a way to to remedy it so it is slightly more equitable? And you know, I remember growing up when I was you know playing when I was a lot younger. Um, it was you know the advantage was to to the attacker. You know, you would give the advantage to the the attacking team now it seems if you have a millimeter or a fragment of your shirt sleeve offside um then you're gaining some sort of unfair unfettered advantage it just seems a bit it's gone too far the other way yeah i mean you touched on it with shirt sleeve this is two domestic cup finals for us that have been potentially decided decided on a shirt sleeve with chilwell in the fa cup final last year um for me and this is unpopular some people disagree with me on this a lot of people will argue that um, the shoulder and the head should be included and the knee and whatever because you can score with them. I'm probably different on that. I, I've said for the last few years since VR, VAR came in, since VAR came in, that it should be standing foot. I'd, I, For me, that is when... That's where you are. That's where you're standing. Your standing foot is what is propelling you forward I think that's I think that's where it should be. It should be foot v foot. Um, if you're lean, yeah, of course you're going to lean forward when you're running. I, I, and I think the whole they talked about back in the day about spirit of the law. And I think what I said was it's probably not fit for purpose now. I think, but I think spirit of the law is good. They always used to say, "Oh, you kind of uh, it's, it's better like daylight, for the game." Wasn't it? If you could see daylight, yeah, between daylight the between the, the players, yeah. and uh, it's better for the game if the. Uh, um, attacking players I'm not even trying to be that controversial I'm just saying uh, standing foot for me is <laughs> where you are like that's where you're stood that's where your weight bearing foot is that's what it should be and I think Lukaku's knee while leaning forward was in line with Van Dijk his foot is a whole foot behind him um, and it's his shoulder that's that's done it and I, again it's just I don't want to um spend too much time on it obviously because sour grapes and all that sort of stuff but I think I think it is it's frust- it must be frustrating for Tuchel he, Tuchel said after the final that that's the sort of final you want to lose if you're going to lose a final because the performance was outstanding and we did take them to the absolute wire and I think I mentioned to you before recording that City and the freak West Ham game aside we haven't lost a game since September including this final where we went 120 minutes without being beaten um 
but yeah, it's frustrating for me. For me, it should be standing foot. For me, it should be standing foot. But I think, I think we had the chances aside from that. I think Roms would have been really good for him narrative wise, and I think it was a pretty well taken goal. Um, he he went down that right hand channel, brilliant from Trev. Trev got out nice and early, played a brilliant ball. Um, the the frustrating thing I think is Rom doesn't need to be off, and it was maybe his third offside of the game um, in only fifty minutes, and and there was a few from Werner as well, and you. You're meant to be the freshest guys. You should have that extra little willingness to get back on side, especially with VAR being so punishing if you're even a millimetre off. But um, but yeah, I think he doesn't need to be off. He's he's perfectly in between Van Dijk and Matic, or Konate, I think it was at the time. Um, and, and it's a really well-taken goal, and it's frustrating for him and, and the narrative, and, and obviously us as fans. But um, but yeah. If we, we take it back to, let's try and be, be a little bit more positive now, because I actually think in general, the, the performances we've had against Liverpool have been massive positives and certainly feathers in, in Tico's kind of cap in terms of, yeah, his, his sort of managerial tenure here. Is there anything else, let's say, beyond specifics in the, in the League Cup final? Is there anything else that you've noticed that has given us, a, let's say, an edge when, when we've played against them? Because it, it, as I said, sort of in the, the opening of this segment, there is an element of, of some recurring kind of themes, whether it's the management of Salah, whether it's the aggression from the centre-backs, whether it is that adopting a slightly more kind of helter-skelter midfield pairing in Kante and, and Kova. Um, is there anything beyond the League Cup final that you've seen over the, let's say, the, the past kind of few matches we've had with them that also is lending itself to having what, you know, so Tuka was alluding to as an, an, an excellent performance against Liverpool in, in another high-pressure game? I think just, I think the, I think that, that's that I mentioned at the top of where we are second lowest in the Premier League in terms of high turnovers resulting in in shots. Liverpool are first. So they have 50 across the season and we have 25. Aston Villa, the only team lowest than us with 19. And then everyone else kind of hovers around, around 30, 35. And then Southampton are the closest to Liverpool. So clearly we're not as good at getting out um, and springing sort of whether it's patterns or whether it's just quality of player to see the pass in the, in the split second, we're not good at winning that ball in that final third and, and converting it into something. And then partly that might be too cool. It might be that he doesn't trust the players. It might be that he would rather just keep control um, and, and is more concerned with just not it becoming a, a bit of a tennis match or a basketball game in terms of one turnover for them leads to one for us leads to one for them. Um, I think we could be a bit more ambitious there. But then on the flip side, we we don't lose games. And I think we are one or two quality players away from being built on this bedrock of rock solid foundations. And I think I think part of the reason maybe we're so good against Liverpool is that we are contrasting. And we I, I'd say we're we're a versatile side. We're not as sort of committed to one area of playing in terms of transitional stuff and counter-pressing as they are. But I think you, you kind of have to lean into what your strengths are. And I think there is something to be said for the identity of Chelsea being a defense, sorry, defending first team. Um, and I think there, I think you have Silva, you have Rudiger, you have Kovacic and Kante, you have Azpilicueta who can play almost any position down that right side that you need him to. You have Trevor Chalaba, you have Reese James, you have Mason Mount who is, will harass anyone into oblivion. I think I think there's something to be said for leaning into what makes us good. And I think that can give us a real can give us a real um awkwardness for a team like Liverpool, who usually are so good at picking apart weaknesses, and we don't really show many. I think 
we talked about the gap with City and stuff like that. I think one or two players taking an internal development leap into something a bit more um, game-changing, whether it be a Pulisic or a Havertz, is is what separates us, whether it be Mount just becoming more clinical. I think it is what is what separates us now from from the City and arguably the Liverpool. Um, obviously, with the ownership stuff now, I'm, I'm, it's maybe right to be concerned that we've been able to get away with some really bad decisions by just sacking a new manager and, and buying a new player. And maybe we can look to Liverpool for how to be better run um, and not be wasting money and, and everything like that. But I think I think we are right to... And I think this is where I kind of side and sympathise with Tuku. I, 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 I rate our defensive players higher than I do our forward players. Um, I think Thiago Silva, Antonio Rudiger and Kovacic and Kante are a better bedrock for a team than Havertz, Pulisic, Ziyech, Mount and Werner are for the, the the attacking impetus of a team. And so I think it makes sense from a tactical side then to lean on those players' strengths as, as a bedrock of what you do. But I think we provide Liverpool a really, really awkward um, issue. They do throw bodies forward and then in transitions we, we were really, really good. Um, but I do just wish we had the quality of player where it was shown more in the league. I think I think Burnley was an interesting one in terms of we were we changed the shape ever so slightly, but then it says a lot that we got Reese back for that. And we we do have to remember we've been without two significant players to make a system work for the majority of the season. Um and I guess you could also argue that in Hudson Adoy and Havertz and Pulisic, we have players that are all twenty three. Mason Mount twenty three. All of those are twenty three. None of them are in the prime of their career like a Salah, like a Mane. Um, so yeah, I, I know that's a bit of a, a ramble, but I think just, I think we are different. I think we are probably halfway between Liverpool and City. And I think that flexibility isn't a bad thing. And I think we should maybe embrace what we are and, and build on that in terms of how we can, we can threaten for winning another Premier League. But I think Tuchel, I said it, I think I've said it before, but I think Tuchel is the biggest asset that this club has, especially yeah, now with 100%. new ownership, where you're going to have to be looking at really potentially really carefully managing your assets I think having a coach who can go toe-to-toe with Pep in a Champions League final um, I think let's not get too down on the two losses this season he's he's still 3-2 in terms of the win-loss column against Pep Guardiola Um, I would argue as outcoached Klopp three times out of three um, I think that, that is still the biggest asset we have and I just don't think we have the attacking players that Liverpool do but in terms of um, across all phases of the game, in terms of control of a game, I think we have, I think we have a lot to to be happy about. And I think just obviously with the drama of Lukaku and some really frustrating draws and maybe the, not the most exciting football at times, I think it is easy to forget the fact that we don't lose games. We've lost three games since September, um, and arguably a, a cup final as well, but only on penalties, um, which we had the better chances to win in open play. So, um, so yeah, I just, I just feel like we are, we should be excited to have someone like Tuchel only a year or so in Liverpool have had to be seven, eight years through their process. And we look at them as this team who are fantastic, but we've won more. Arguably the league is the only thing that has eluded Tuchel that Klopp has won really. So, so I think just look at the positives of that and look at the uniqueness of what we have to, to build upon. And I guess, that kind of links nicely into 
people like Thiago Silva, who we should be very fortunate to have um, considered, very fortunate to have. Yeah, I think before we finish up part two here, that there's two sort of very, very small notes I wanted to make, just really a little bit of elaboration on some of the stuff Yaza said there as well. Um, we're deliberately not touching upon new owners for the time being. I think when we eventually do know who it's going to be, I think Yaz and I have already kind of agreed that we're going to do as much research as possible if they've got a sporting background and dig into them and, and possibly try to predict some sort of uh, state of play, some sort of model that they might be trying to sort of bring into Chelsea, the way they manage the the, the current team, etc. If not, then I suppose that will have to be a, an episode that we're having to shelve. Um, but in terms of the, the ownership question, I think when you look at the... The team that Klopp came in to coach, and I'll use Klopp in particular because City obviously went about things in a slightly different way in that they had kind of already onboarded a number of, of key people before that they actually acquired Guardiola from, from Bayern. Um, but Liverpool fully backed the, the sort of Klopp ideology. They've been you know, with him for, was it seven seasons now, eight seasons, whatever it's going to be. But they never really saw the fruits of that labour until maybe the fourth or fifth season when they started to, to put together the pieces. Um... I think from a Chelsea perspective, and a, a very short point here, we're, we're at an infinitely higher level um, than when Liverpool went to, I, I think they're an incredibly well-run club, the, the model that they have now in place in terms of the, probably taking the, the best parts of, of some American sports teams, but also blending it with a better understanding of, of sort of European football and how that works as an entity. So I think my hope is that whoever, if, if it is a consortium and it, it does appear to be American leaning at the moment, that they look at sort of the lessons learned from that um, sort of takeover and the progression that was made there, but also um, note that with Tuchel and with the squad that we have, I think we're certainly in a much higher level. And then that really sort of feeds into kind of the final part of the part two. Um, again, to, to Yasu's point here, the teams that we are kind of benchmarking Chelsea against, the Cities and the Liverpools, you know, they have had, um, you know, coaches in charge of those teams now for, you know, virtually, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, you know, they're, they're approaching almost a decade in charge, which, given the turnover, turnover of Premier League managers, the average managerial tenure, I still think is at just over 18 months uh, in the Premier League, is, is unheard of, particularly at that sort of top level. All the benefits of coaching, all the benefits of refining their processes, the system that they play, uh, their recruitment models, everything they have, they've, they've worked on and improved iteratively over the seasons they've been in charge. Um, Tuchel, this is still technically his first full season in charge of Chelsea. Um, yes, you know, as I said, I think we have a slightly better squad than some of those who came in um, judging against them. But I do feel that when we're comparing against, you know, these sort of behemoths that we're trying to compete with domestically, um, sometimes we do need to take a little bit of a step back and realise that, you know, this is this is going to be a, a fairly, uh, I think, hopefully robust process in terms of how we, we continue to develop. But Tuchel has uh, had one full uh, season in charge of the club it's it's still kind of coming out of that weird sort of pandemic phase and, and moving into a weirdly placed uh, world cup at the end of this year there's going to be lots of stuff in there that's going to stop him from maybe having the contact time that he would want with players um to sort of develop and uh, continue to, to sort of impart his ideas on the, on the squad and as you know anyone who listened to the previous um, episode where we sort of focused quite intensely on the recruitment side of things people will know that that certainly from from my perspective 
we, this the construction of the squad, the way it's been put together over a period of time, hasn't necessarily led itself to the entire 2022, 20, 23, whatever it is, outfield players all being comfortably able to play the same style of football. So we're trending towards that. We're moving towards that with with Tuchel, um, and that will lead us very nicely, I think, into the the first question of the of the third part here. But Wrapping up part two, looking back at sort of Liverpool and, and Liverpool as a whole, really, and how Chelsea sort of compare to them. Um, and as again, I would like to thank the sponsors for financially sponsoring the show. And we will be back with part three in a second. All right. It's I, Senator Jake, the bearer of bad news. That is the end of the first Tinkerman episode this week. But the great news is that's one of two episodes this week. The next one is tomorrow. And you'll have about another 90 plus minutes of Tinkerman content. What more could you ask for? So, we'll see you then, tomorrow. But until then, keep the blue flag flying high.